If you study the life of the first century disciple, if you go back and look at that initial call that Jesus sent out to Andrew and Peter and John, and then you start to look at the practice of their lives, a lot of people would probably conclude in our day that those first century disciples were radical. But if you really study what being a disciple is, those first century disciples were really just living the normal Christian life. These people were empowered and motivated by the Holy Spirit, and God ended up using them to turn the world upside down. So a lot of times, if we're not careful, when we go back and look at those early disciples or even the life of Paul and Timothy and Titus and others, we would think that they were kind of abnormal, supernatural, kind of like different kind of Christians, but they were just normal. And that's the life that God is calling us to. Uh, I, I would say this, becoming a disciple of Jesus means that he will call you to a deeper place. Here's a premise statement. We cannot become what we need to be by staying what we are. We cannot become what we need to be. We cannot become what God intended for us to be by just remaining what we've been. I mean, that would be insanity. And so it really is implied throughout the pages of Scripture that when we start to follow Rabbi Jesus, he starts to radically change us from the inside out. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite writers, said it this way, the true follower of Christ will not ask, if I embrace this truth, what will it cost me? No, he will say, this is truth. God help me to walk in it no matter what may come my way. And I think for a lot, it's like, okay, so what is going to be the price of really becoming a disciple? Tozer said, hey, hey, hey we, we don't ask that. This is truth. No matter what comes my way, I'm going to walk in it. John Ortberg, one of my favorite writers, said this, the decision to grow always involves a choice between risk and comfort. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must renounce comfort as the ultimate value of your life. And I've established with you over the days and weeks past that one of the dirtiest four-letter words for evangelicals is the word R-I-S-K. It's a dirty word for many because God is going to call us out of our comfort zone and out of our place of just tranquility, and God's going to call you to take risk. Without faith, you can't please him. Those who come to God must believe he exists. He rewards those who seek him. So faith is a risk word. It's stepping out into the unknown, but it's trusting Christ to lead you. So if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, your life is going to have a lot of challenges, but yet a lot of excitement. I've had people tell me, well, the Christian life is boring, and it's dull, and it's predictable. I'm not really sure who you're following. <laughs> I can tell you this, challenging, yes. Exciting, yes. Boring, predictable, and dull, no chance. No chance, not if you're following the real Jesus. If you're following this religious institution, then maybe yes, but not Jesus. Luke chapter 14 is where I'm going to dive today. Beginning in verse 25, I don't want to talk about the cost of discipleship. Now, I want you to see this right out of the gate. Luke 14, starting in verse 25. Now, large crowds were going along with Jesus. It would be wise to circle that word right there, large crowds. He turned to them and said, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to compete, uh, complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe will begin to ridicule him, saying, look, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So then, none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all of his possessions. He goes on in verse 35 to say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What is the redundant phrase that is mentioned here in this teaching? You cannot be my disciple is used three times. And it is crazy when you start to study it that you had all of these people, large crowds, starting to hang out with Jesus, and they loved what he was having to share in theory. But Jesus does something wild. He thins out the crowd. He thins them out to really to see what their real motive is. And a lot of us need our motives examined because if you study scripture, there was a lot of people hanging out with Jesus because they loved his tricks and his treats. They loved his miracles and the free meals he was offering. But he looks and he says, hey, it's time to thin out the crowd. So he preaches this message of all in. This is the gospel according to Jesus. I guarantee you, if this message was preached in the majority of churches today, it would scare a lot of people big time. But what he's driving home here is, are you a seeker or are you really a follower? Are you curious or are you truly committed? Are you fascinated with what I'm doing or are you really dedicated to what I'm doing? If you want to read a great story, you can go back in Judges uh, chapter 7. Judges 7 is an interesting text as well that kind of uh, parallels with, it, with this message uh, right here in Luke 14. But God was sending Gideon and the army into battle, and they were going to go fight the Midianites. And so they were preparing to go into this battle. God looks at Gideon and says, uh, you've got too many men. He had 32,000 soldiers. They were getting ready to move into battle. And God says, this is not going to work. So Gideon, he says, go tell the people, those who are scared and those who are tired, just go home. 22,000 piked it in. And then he takes them down to the river and he gives them this exercise. And he says, now get your army down to only those who cup the water and drink it out of their hand. Number was 300. And he goes on to say, I had to trim this number down so that the people did not think and would not think that the victory belonged to them. It belongs to me. So here, here, here's the point. When God starts to trim it down, John 15 is all about pruning and cleaning it up. When God starts to trim it down, God can do more with 300 committed soldiers than he can 32,000 half-hearted and Jesus knew if he was going to build his church and establish his work, he could do a lot more with those who were true than those who were just curious and who were hanging around for the wrong reason. Great story, and I would encourage you to, to look at it. I want to talk about these four observations out of Luke 14. And here's what Jesus kind of paints up. 
Number one, he says, you've got to love God more than anyone. That's what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, brother, sister, his wife, his kids, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's interesting that he uses the word hate, and the word hate is used in contrast here. He's not saying that you hate as we would use it, talk, never talk to them, never spend any time with them. He's making the contrast that if I am not priority in your life, if I don't have preeminence in your life, if, if you don't love me and pursue me, and if I'm not on the throne of your life and you've put something else there, it's not, it's not going to work. This is a heavy message when he comes out of the gate. I must have your throne. I must occupy the center of your heart. There's a great story in Luke 9 where Jesus looked at a guy one day and said, follow me. And the guy looked and said, uh, uh, let me first go home and bury my parents. Let, let, let me wait a little bit on that kind of a call you've extended. I'm going to get a great inheritance. I, I'm about to bank here in a few years when mom and dad go boots up. Let, let, me, let me wait a little bit. So he uses an excuse. Let me tell you why I'm not going to follow you. And excuses will cause you to live a defeated life. It blows my mind when people, hey, hey, are you going to go in? I've established with you guys. Winners have results, but losers have reasons. They have excuses. And you start to talk to people on, why don't you give? And excuses, and why don't you serve? And excuses, and why don't you extend the love of Christ in your workplace? And, and excuses, and excuses will tie you up and wear you out and destroy your life. Coach, we don't put up with excuses. I can't handle, uh, hand the ball to an excuse maker. I don't want that guy in game seven of the World Series if he's filled with excuses. There's always going to be tension. But when Jesus calls, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, he bids a man to come and die. Come and die. You've got to give up you and you've got to give up your agenda and your strategies and your solutions. Come and die. So here's what I want you to know. God will test our devotion. God will constantly allow us to be put into situations that test our devotion. But the reason he allows it to happen is so that it will be revealed to us what do we love the most. God never tests us so that God can go, let me see what you really believe. God allows us to be tested so that we will stop and step back and go, huh, that is my problem. You go back and read the story in Genesis about Abraham, and God had blessed Abraham and Sarah when they were 190 with a son, Isaac, and Abraham really loved Isaac. Isaac became his pride and joy, and Isaac was so special in Abraham's life, but Abraham, as he watched him grow, many scholars believe that Isaac had become a little too important to Abraham. So God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him. 
Again, A.W. Tozer writes, it was then that God stepped in to save both father and son from the consequences of an uncleansed love. I I was reading Tozer the other day, and I'm like, how phenomenal and how powerful that God steps in to this man, Abraham, father of faith, and he interrupted him and intercepted him and, and, and challenged him that he would not have some type of uncleansed love going on in his life. And I think it's easy for us to get there. When Abraham passed the test, God basically said, I never intended for you to kill your son. But Tozer goes on to write this. I just wanted to remove him from the throne of your heart so that I remained unchallenged there. I wanted to remove him from the throne of your heart so that I remained unchallenged challenge there. So really the question has to be posed to each and every one of us, am I willing to sacrifice my Isaac to the Lord? And then I've got to step back and go, what are the Isaacs in my life? It could be a relationship or it can be with your kids or it can be with a job or it can be with a career or it can be with a a habit. But the question really is posed when it comes to this whole thing of loving God above anyone else. Have I any Isaacs in my life that are occupying the throne of my heart right now? Make sense? This is a whole message, a strong message on discipleship. So according to Jesus, a disciple is someone who loves God more than anyone else, including family and including friends. I will never forget this. Back in January of 1988, I had just going to see the doctor in LA after I had my shoulder done. I was about six months post-op. I go out and he's like, it's going to be at least another year before you could throw. While I'm there meeting with the doctor and while I'm in LA, I get a certified letter back in Georgia. I talk to mom. She goes, the Dodgers have released you. So I was now no longer under contract. And I was hanging out with a buddy of mine in California, Jeff. And we go to this Bible study with Calvary Chapel out where he lived in Downey. I'll never get sitting there. And I was like really praying like, Lord, what, what is the future? And in this Bible study of about 100 college people, this girl came up and laid hands on me. And she said, you and I have never met. And I said, no, we've never met. And she said, I've been praying and God just wanted me to tell you that he's got a call on your life to take the gospel into the world. I don't know what it means, but God just said, hey, hey, you're going to preach the gospel to many. So I'm sitting there going, this is crazy because I already had started to feel this internal pull in my soul. So I leave there. I'm fly up to Indiana where Tom, the guy who started Unlimited Potential was, and I met with Tom and met just with some other people in that community. And I was like, man, God, are you calling me to be a part of this ministry? Which I ended up being with it for 20 years. But I left Indiana, flew back to Georgia, got off the plane at about 6 p.m. And dad picked me up at the airport and he said, let's go to church. I'm like, let's, let's go to church. So, so we go to fellowship that night and the pastor is preaching about Isaac. And he's preaching about when Isaac, his servants were sent out to find a a wife for him. And they come to this girl, Rebecca, and they look at her and say, are you willing to go with this man? I'll never forget this. It, It was one of those defining moments in my life. And God began to 
shake my heart. He goes, are you willing to go with me wherever I may send you? Are you willing to leave what you know and to go to where I'm sending you? Remember, I started to weep. I'm like, I'm willing to go. I'm willing to go. And I went up front and just laid on the floor before God. And I'm like, okay, God. Well, one of the guys in the church came up and laid hands, and he goes, "Ah, I'm sorry that your arm's hurting. You can't play baseball anymore. I'm like, what is that? My mom, who's a real just strong lady in my life, but my mom's not an emotional, demonstrative church kind of person. She sits in the back. She's kind of out of the view of everything. I've never seen her go forward. I've never seen her speak in front of anyone. My mom, while I'm praying, while I'm on my face, my mom comes up and she kneels beside me and puts her hand on me and she says, son, I'm like, yes, you've got to go. And it was a defining moment that God was calling her little boy, who was 25, but it was still her little boy. But the Lord confirmed, your boy's got to go. And that was such a strong, defining moment in my life because there's so many parents where at times God may be putting a call on that kid's life. And the parent is holding on going, I don't want to see you to go, go to Africa. I don't want to see you go to the Philippines. I don't want to see you serve down around Tech Wood and that drug. And, and God is saying, go. And, and, and the point is, if we love someone more than him, it becomes a challenged allegiance in our heart too. Number two. Deny yourself and take up your cross daily. He says in verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me. Our greatest hindrance in our journey today in discovering that all that God has for us is a preoccupation with self. We live in a self-absorbed and a self consumed society. You can read 2 Timothy 3 on your own, but he says this, in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self-pleasure, lovers of money. They're going to have all this junk, and he says they're going to have a form of godliness, but deny the power therein. Avoid such men as these. These men are going to claim me in word and claim me in talk, but not have a walk that matches it. And and, and all it says is when you live preoccupied with self, how to protect self, how to elevate self, how to gratify self, you're going to miss out on what God has for you. In Luke 9, he says, if anyone, similar style phraseology, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and Follow me. The word deny means to disown, to forfeit, and to totally disregard. So when I deny myself, I'm forfeiting myself to the lordship of Jesus. I'm disregarding what my agenda and strategies and solutions are because I desire the supremacy of Christ in my life. You can go back and read that when a person was carrying their cross or bearing their cross in that culture, they were on a one-way journey to the place of death. They were not coming back, and there was no sense in looking back when they had 
strapped on the cross, they were on their place to die. And Paul would even use similar imagery in Galatians when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not me living anymore, but it's now Christ living in me, the life I'm now living, I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see the call for discipleship? You see the call for going all in? You see, when we wake up in the morning and you say, Jesus, save me from me again, save me to you, would your power infuse me? Would I walk in the power of the gospel of grace today? But Lord, I consider myself dead. Even Paul would use imagery in Romans 7, and he would say that we have died to ourselves, basically. We have died to the old man. So when we say that we're Talmuds and disciples, what we're saying is he's occupying the throne of my life. If I do not recognize that everything that I have belongs to Jesus Christ, I can't be a disciple. Everything I have, my, my health, my, my, my family, where I live, what I drive, what I eat, even the psalmist would say, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. He owns it all. How do you become a disciple? It all belongs to you. Remember the story that Jesus had with the rich young ruler? Mark chapter 10, the guy comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not testify falsely, don't lie, don't cheat, honor your father and mother. This young guy looked at Jesus and said, teacher, I've kept all of that. I've kept it all since I was a child. Jesus said, you like one thing. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. You've got all this duty stuff down, but you don't live a generous life. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And I've had people say, man, that was too harsh. All he was saying is, what is the God of your life, small g? What is on the throne of your heart? If it would have been something else, Jesus would have challenged him with that. And it says the man walked away sad because he had many possessions. So, so the question we have to ask is, what am I possessing? Is there anything occupying that that needs to be forfeited? I need to be disowning it. So what is on the throne? It would be number four. He says, he says, you've got to forsake it all. You've got to count the cost, point four. Which one of you, which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down, calculate the cost to see if he has enough? Which one does not count the cost? Now, listen, 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 listen. A gentleman came up to me last Sunday Right at the end of the first service, we were hanging by, back in the Ask Me area. And he looked at me and he said, love the prayer time, whatever. He goes, why don't y'all give an invitation at the end? I said, one, show me where it's at in the Bible. He goes, it's not there. Listen, 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 count the cost, count the cost. I said, I've been a part of churches and cultures over the years where I've seen people come forward and cry for three or four minutes and have an emotional decision. Following Jesus is a spiritual transaction and spiritual decision. Jesus taught, are you willing to count the cost? 
I said, we invite people. Fill out the Connect card. I want to sit down and talk to someone. We believe if you sit down with one of our staff, one of our care pastors, one of our elders, one of our leaders, you can sit there and go, now tell me your story. Tell me what's going on. Do you really want to follow Jesus? I've been a part of churches where 14 stanzas of just as I am. Every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. Hey, brother, there, there's, God has put it on my heart that there's a man struggling with lust. Yeah, about 98% of them, but you're not going to close it until the dude comes forward? Hey, there's a sister here struggling with gossip today. I'm not going to close this invitation down until you come. And I've sat there going, Why? Just get up where we can go eat. Somebody go talk to this dude. (laughs) But following Jesus is a spiritual decision. And so many people make impulsive choices. There's people that entered into a relationship called marriage, and all of a sudden they're like, what was I thinking Some of y'all laugh because that's been you. You're like, I didn't count the cost. There's so many impulsive decisions that people make. I'm telling you, what what are you doing? I just bought this new boat. How's that working for you? You hold it for three years. You bought it at 22. You sold it for 17. Based on my calculation, brother, that costs you about $2,500 a fishing trip. People go into jobs and people go into careers without praying through it and sitting back. And a lot of people think they can do that with Jesus. You can't. I want to dismiss that myth. It's not an emotional impulse thing. It is a surrender of the heart. When you say to him, I'm going all in, I'm repenting, I'm leaving these less wild lovers and I'm going to press into you, that is a spiritual decision. I've been doing pre-marriage counseling. I've had a couple of, a uh, few couples I've met with here recently. I started doing this. I'm like, uh, so how did y'all meet? And I'm meeting with this one guy who's a lawyer the last one I met with. And I said, how did y'all meet? He goes, uh, we met this way. I said, great. Well, why do you want to marry her? He's a lawyer. Whew, nobody's asked me that yet. <laughs> nobody's asked you that yet? You going to get married and nobody's asked you why you want to marry her? That's a great question. I think it's pretty much a foundational question. So we start talking and tell me your story and they tell me their story and tell me your faith story because I deal with five things when I deal with pre-marriage counseling. We deal with faith and we deal with family and we deal with finances. We deal with communication and then we deal with sex. And so I save the best for last, but you, you have to talk through these five areas because they never die in a marriage, in a healthy marriage. And so I'm talking and so I look and I, they tell me their faith story. And I said, so... Uh, and I've been talking to these couples. It's great. I said, now, I looked at the guy and I said, now, zero to 100, when it comes to your commitment and resolve to walking with Jesus, how committed to Christ are you? And he said, probably about 70%. I said, I got you. So I look at the female. Where are you at in your commitment to Christ? And she said, about 65%. I said, okay. Now, Here's the question I want to pose to you. 
are you okay with him only being 70% committed to your marriage? No, 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 no. You can't ask him to be more committed to you who's a fallen, flawed creature than you can to the God that made him, redeemed him, and he's going to stand before one day. That would be insanity. And the old boy is like, I get it. No, no, but, but you're okay. Just 70% commitment. He's there. He's locked in. He's going to take out the trash, and he's going to love you. And, but 30% of the time, homie is checking out. He can go play. <laughs> and they looked, and they're like, no. Then why would you expect on the horizontal what you're not giving on the vertical? The one that made you in his image and breathed breath into your nostrils and made you come alive, and you're saying, it's okay. It's not okay. Barb and I are going to celebrate our 25th anniversary here in a few days. I'm not okay with her being 80% committed to me. She's not okay with me being 80% committed to her. That, that's not going to work. And it doesn't work spiritually. It doesn't work spiritually. So here's what I would say. Here's what I would say. Whatever disrupts your desire to walk with him, to know him, whatever disrupts your desire to give and to serve, whatever would quench your hunger for the word and prayer and fellowship, whatever makes this world more attractive to you must go if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus. Salvation is free. Discipleship cost us everything. Don't trivialize and minimize the sacrificial work of our king. Come follow me. What's it going to require? Everything. Is it worth it? Yeah. So I cannot practice sin and pretend that I'm following him. I may be laughed at for my convictions, mocked for my beliefs, even ridicule for trying to obey the scripture. But I will tell you this, I would rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I would rather have the peace and the power and the presence of Jesus than anything this world can offer. There's a cost, but what is gained is beyond comprehension. To each disciple, each day is a fresh opportunity to walk with God. To the disciple, life has purpose and direction. It's life abundant. If you're settling for anything short than discipleship, you're missing out. Here's a close. You have to make a choice. Are you going to be a fan or are you going to be a follower? Are you going to be curious or are you going to be committed? Are you going to be fascinated or are you going to be dedicated? Will you take up the cross daily or will you reject it? Do you want to gain the world and forfeit your soul or have life abundant that is offered in Christ? If you're settling for anything less than, you're missing the boat. 
And so don't miss out any longer. These teachings right here, apply them, submit to them, and watch God radically transform you. 